Let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy and blessing as we approach your word. We, we know we come with empty hands. We know we come as the flock of your hand, that, that we're coming to be fed by you. And we know that your, your word is true food for us and that <clears throat> we seek to be fed by your word. We seek that by your living water, by the Holy Spirit within us, that we will be made to understand your word, to wash it down, as it were. Uh, we thank you for the grace you've poured out on this little church. We thank you for the wedding yesterday and the, the godly couple that have chosen to, to believe your word and chosen to be married in a way that honors you. Uh, we're aware that this is not what the world wants, and they have chosen to go a different way than the world. They've chosen to go your way, and we ask for your blessing to be poured out on that relationship. <clears throat> I'm thankful for Sister Kezia and ask for your mercy for her that she would be soon delivered from this child and that she and the baby will be healthy and whole and, and the whole family be blessed together by you. Father, as we approach your word, we ask that you'd feed us on your scripture in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Uh, the last time we were together, actually last week we had a terrific report by a missionary that we've been supporting for some time, and it was the first time any of us had met her. Uh, the church that she's grown up in is the church that Ted and Bernice Coble took some time ago. Those of you who remember Ted and Bernice, uh, who were a dear part of this church while they were here, um, and Ted had told me that they had a young lady out of their church that had gone out with New Tribes as a teacher. And right away I thought, well, the teachers don't tend to get supported very well because they think, well, you're not a real missionary. And so I asked him if he knew how she was supported, and he said he'd get in touch with her parents. <clears throat> and the parents responded. As I recall, I, I asked them, and they sent me her email address or maybe her text message, I forget, one of those high-tech things that I don't understand. Anyway, but we've been supporting her for 18 months, and we've been one of her better supporters. And last Sunday's the first time any of us got to meet her. It was a real blessing. We're real impressed with her. <clears throat> the week before that, however, we'd been talking about John chapter 7, and earlier we've been talking about the, the living water that Jesus promised and finally there's this big argument says divisions that were caused by Jesus by, by him shining the light of God into the dark world there were people who loved the light and were drawn to it and wanted to worship him as their Messiah be taught by him as their prophet there were people who were confused by the light and didn't know what to make of it they didn't know who he was and there were others that hated the light and simply wanted to extinguish it and ultimately, there was a big argument, and Nicodemus, who had become a believer, was involved in that, saying, you know, our law says you don't judge somebody before you hear him, before you find out what it is he's actually saying and doing. And they said, what, are you from Galilee too? And they basically hung up the phone. They, everybody just quit talking, and they all went home. Well, Jesus was a long, long way from home. And what he did is he went and camped out on the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> so that's where we're starting today in John chapter 8. When everybody else went home in verse 53 of the previous chapter, it says Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So early in the morning he came again to the temple where he'd been preaching before. 
And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees, remember these were his enemies, brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said, uh, they say to him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? See, it was a trap. <clears throat> this they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking, he lifted himself up and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where, art the, uh, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. <clears throat> now, that's as far as we're going today. However, I'd like to point some things out within this context. It's a very touching scene to me here at the beginning of John chapter 8. We've been reading about preaching and promises and ministry and miracles and friends and enemies and all kinds of exciting narratives and drama. But here in John chapter 8, these men show up with a trap, a test for Jesus, but it was specifically a trap. <clears throat> they brought him a woman caught in adultery. And now nothing's said about what happened to the man that was involved. Situations like that can tend to get dealt with rather summarily and especially in that age. Very likely he was beaten to death on the spot. I don't know. They didn't say. But the scripture also called for him to be stoned to death. The fact that they only brought her tells me something already happened to him. And they're going to use her as a trap for Jesus. <clears throat> if he went ahead and condemned the woman, thus agreeing with the law, then he would seem harsh to the people. They would see him as being in agreement with the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders who were their oppressors, and they would not readily see him as a savior. But if he said to not stone her, then he would be clearly disobeying the law, denying God's law, and the Pharisees, the scribes, and the chief priests could condemn him for that, because that, that's what they were after. So it looks like a classic damned if you do, damned if you don't type trap, where no matter what he does, he's going to be in trouble. <clears throat> but you see, they brought only two options, and we're going to see that he brought a third. So when we read this, as Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, he was the teacher who had been there the day before, and everybody was listening. He went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came back to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and was teaching them again. Everybody wanted to hear what he had to say, not all for the same motives. <clears throat> Remember, he had been teaching there the day before, and he promised the living water to anyone who believed on him. And this is where the officers had heard him speak and refused to arrest him because of the spirit with which he spoke. But everyone had eventually gone home. Jesus had gone to the Mount of Olives to sleep. But early in the morning, Jesus was back in the temple teaching again. And all the people had come again to hear him. And we're not told what he was teaching that morning. I wish we knew, but we don't know. But there was an interruption in the morning's teaching. And what happened became more 
maybe pointed, may, more appropriate to our lives than what he was teaching about. We're not told what he was teaching. There was an interruption. His enemies came to disrupt his teaching and to test Jesus, trying to find a way to accuse him of sin and a trap and trap him. It says the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? And see, they were trying to catch Jesus in a disagreement with the law of God. Now, honestly, it isn't going to happen. He's the author of the law of God. That's his law. That's what he wrote. You're not going to trap him into saying something different than, than what he wrote. He's the holy God who wrote it. <clears throat> He's the author of the law of God. And Jesus initially acted as though he hadn't heard them. It says he stooped and wrote on the ground with his finger. I do kind of wish I knew what he was writing, but again, we don't know. <clears throat> this they said, tempting him, testing him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger. He wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said to them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. See, they only offered those two possibilities, execute her or turn her loose. Jesus offered a third possibility. They expected he would have to either agree with their interpretation of his word and call for her death or deny the law altogether and disobey God. Either way, they thought they had him trapped. But he presented this third option. Obey God and condemn her. If you yourself are worthy to extend condemnation to another, being free of sin yourself. They said, go ahead. If you're worthy to condemn somebody else, if you're free of sin yourself and you want to extend that condemnation, you make sure you're the first one to throw rocks. And none of them felt that way. They wanted to catch him, but they knew they themselves were guilty of sin. <clears throat> and it says again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So he dismissed the accusers. Pretty interesting. The result to me is pretty astonishing. See, as humans, we usually feel pretty free to condemn one another. We almost never stop to think whether we ourselves have the authority to accuse or the secure platform of personal moral purity from which to condemn someone else. Jesus simply stood up and told him, whoever among you is sinless, let him cast the first stone. And then he stooped down and continued writing on the ground with his finger. I really wish I knew what he was writing, but I don't. And I don't think it's very smart to start guessing when God says nothing about something. <clears throat> There's, I've heard lots of people guess what he was writing. That's tempting, but I don't know. Maybe it doesn't matter. Somehow his quiet authority served to reach their consciences and to convict their hearts. And one by one they slipped away beginning with the eldest and working down towards the younger men until there was nobody left to accuse her. So why was she still standing there? See, that would be the time to run. Nobody's holding on to her anymore. She could have just faded back into the crowd, disappeared. She could have run. She didn't. She stood there. Why? See, I think somehow she had recognized in all of this that Jesus really was the judge of all the earth. 
just like Abraham did. Remember back in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham has these three guys show up. He was sitting under the oaks on the plain of Mamre and in the shade, and he sees these three guys coming down the road. He just thought there's three travelers, so he ran to meet them and says, come on, you can sit with us, you can have lunch, and, you know, relieve yourselves here and rest up before you move on. And so he fed them. He fed them beef and bread and butter and milk, and I always say it was a beef sandwich and a glass of milk because that's what I would do with beef and bread and butter and milk. But first place was probably flatbread because that's real common in that area. So, was, I mean, tortillas, okay, he made himself a burrito, whatever. That, that doesn't matter. The fact is it turned out to be God in the flesh who sat down and ate lunch and talked with Abram. And before the conversation was over, he revealed that he was going to give Sarah a child the next year that Abraham was going to sire a, a son in Sarah, that Sarah would be the mother of a child. She was 90 years old. Actually, she was 89 when this prophecy came from God directly. And uh, Abram was 99. And he was 100 when Isaac was born. <clears throat> but then God told him he was headed down towards Sodom and Gomorrah because of the corruption there. And that was going to judge them according to what he saw. And Abraham started dickering with him for the life of Lot. By the way, if you're reading this on your notes off the internet, this part isn't there. This is free. He started dickering with him for the life of Lot. And in that passage in Genesis chapter 25, verse 18, Abram addressed this person who we know to be Jesus, God in the flesh, appearing in his pre-incarnate self. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. He knew who he was dealing with by now. And he knew that this person who just ate dinner there, sitting under the trees at his tent, was the judge of all the earth. And Jesus confirmed that in John chapter 5, verse 22. There he said, The Father judges no man, but has con committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father who sent him. Yes, Jesus is the judge of all the earth, and somehow this young woman recognized that, and she was waiting for his word. She didn't run away. By her actions, she confessed that the accusation was true and that she was awaiting judgment from Jesus. Yes, she called him Lord, but we don't want to make more of that than we ought to because in those days, the word Lord was used like we use the word sir. And, and usually it meant no more than that. Sometimes the Pharisees called him Lord too, but they certainly did not consider him their master. She may have. Let's say she did. That doesn't make any difference. Her actions were what we're speaking here. She stayed. She waited for Jesus' judgment. She waited for him to address her case as her judge, and in doing so, she met him as her Savior. In doing so, she met him as her Savior. <clears throat> Back in John chapter 1, verse 17, we saw that the law came through Moses, but that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, last week in Bible study, we were talking about Moses dying before getting to go into the Holy Land. And we talked about the fact that in a way that was fitting because the law is not what carries us into the life of the, of the believer. Grace does. L law works have no place in it. Moses, his, his ministry ended at the crossing over into the promised land. 
It says grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. We saw the contrast between law and grace back in John 1, 17, where it says the law came by Moses, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law was represented here by the scribes and the Pharisees. <clears throat> they came as proponents of the law, demanding judgment against this woman. Because that is what the law requires. See, what does the law require of me as someone who has been a lawbreaker his whole life? Death. So the law's demands regarding me were fulfilled when Jesus died in my place at the cross. That's why Paul could say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, I, through the law, am dead to the law. The law looks at me now and says he's dead. I've got nothing further to say. The law doesn't talk to dead people. It talks to live people. I, through the law, am dead to the law that I might live unto God. So Jesus didn't deny the law. He just offered grace in its place. He didn't deny the truth of her guilt, but he offered grace in spite of her guilt. So what is grace? A lot of you have already quoted this over and over. Grace is unearned favor, unmerited favor. She had no merit to point to, saying how she had earned God's forgiveness or blessing. No, she hadn't. Apparently her accusers also recognized their unworthiness, but they didn't stick around and wait for grace. They didn't say, well, I guess I can't stone her because I'm just as guilty as she is. I've broken the law too in ways that I should be stoned. <clears throat> they just left. They knew they were not in a position to accuse, so they gave up and left, but she stayed. By her actions, she confessed her guilt and confessed that Jesus was her judge. And she received grace and forgiveness, not because she deserved it. We don't know the circumstances. We don't need to know the circumstances. The fact is that we are each just as guilty as she. We may not be guilty of the exact same sin, but if I read through Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18 down through the end of the chapter, I find out that if I'm honest about what's in my heart, I'm guilty of the same kinds of sin as she is, whether it's the same one or not. Romans chapter 1 pretty much encapsulates the, what the sin nature is capable of. It's by no means exhaustive, but it's a very extensive list. And by the time we read as far as Romans chapter 3, verse 19, we find out that the entire world is guilty before God. And that that was the purpose of the law, was to make the whole world silent before God and guilty before God, was to close every mouth so that nobody could say, well, I'm different. You ever notice when you try to share with people, they'll say, well, it's different about me. You know, say, I'm different. No, you're not. You're tired of the same brush I am. If we're honest with ourselves, we realize we're all guilty of the same kinds of sin, and we're condemned before God, and we were hopelessly deep in our guilt. <clears throat> that woman saw herself that way that morning. She was clearly caught in sin for what she expected, capital punishment. That is what the law required. And she correctly saw Jesus as her eternal judge. I don't know how she saw that. I don't know how, I don't know how Abraham saw it, but he did. And he expressed it verbally. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? <clears throat> she stood before Jesus and waited for his word concerning her. I don't know what you want to call it. Judgment, uh, sentence, her case. <clears throat> she silently placed her faith in his judgment and trusted in him to extend mercy if it was available. And he acknowledged the truth of her guilt and by extension, ours. Think about that. By recognizing her guilt, he also recognizes our guilt. 
the law does accuse me, it does accuse you. And God's willing to set aside the judgment of the law and extend grace to us the same as he did to her. <clears throat> grace doesn't deny the truth. It recognizes the bad news of our fatal illness called sin. And it offers the only cure for that disease, the blood of Jesus at the cross. And that is good news. That's what the word gospel means, is good news. When you're trying to explain to somebody how they can be born again, keep this story in mind. There's a really simple story here of a guilty sinner recognizing herself as guilty, standing before Jesus as her eternal judge, and receiving his mercy as her savior. So now he's her, he's her eternal savior. <clears throat> Grace is free to us, but it came at a terrible price for Jesus, the creator God. God in the flesh, the holy, righteous God of the universe, the creator God, the Son, became sin, became sin, not became a sinner, became sin for us so that God the Father could pour out all his wrath on our sin and not destroy the sinner. There's the only way he could separate the sin from the sinner is to transfer all the sin to Jesus so that Jesus became sin in God's eyes so that God could pour out his wrath on our sin without destroying us, the sinners. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes that real clear. He says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. See, Jesus took all of my sin and gave me all of his righteousness. What a trade. What an incredible trade. What an insane trade, if you stop and think about it. In human terms, who would be goofy enough to give something of real value for something of, that's of no value? That wasn't the point. The point was that he was trying to redeem our souls, and he's the only way, one, he could do it, and that was the only way he could do it. Now, see, I can't see this woman's heart, nor anyone else's for that matter, but it seems... <clears throat> someplace along in here, she placed her faith in Jesus. That's what her actions tell me. She stood there waiting because she had faith that as her judge, he also had the capacity to pass over the judgment that was required by the law and extend mercy to her. And she waited on him to do just that, and he did. She placed her faith in Jesus both as her judge and as her savior. Abraham did the exact same thing. He, in uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says that Abraham believed God and God credited, credited it to his account as righteousness. He imputed it to him as righteousness. That's what the word impute means. It means crediting to someone's account. <clears throat> he was declared righteous on the basis of his faith. The thief on the cross did exactly the same thing. He didn't understand the gospel Frankly, I don't think we do either. We understand bits and pieces of it. We know what God says. We faithfully teach what he says. But honestly, I don't understand how someone else's death could pay for my sins. In God's economy, that works. In U.S. law, it sure doesn't work. If you execute the wrong guy, it's just a, a tragedy. It's a miscarriage of justice. But in God's justice... He made it from the beginning that he could substitute an innocent person, a righteous person, not just innocent, a righteous person for the guilty person and save the guilty person thereby. That happened clear back in Genesis chapter 3. You check it out. It's beyond my understanding. It's beyond my 
imagination that he would take all my sins and give me all his righteousness. <clears throat> the thief on the cross placed his trust in Jesus and he was promised, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now how does that happen? Well, in Romans chapter 3, <clears throat> quoting Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the man to whom God will not impute sins. Okay, that's future tense. Who will not impute sins. How can God fail to impute iniquity, that's the word that he chose, to someone who beyond question is clearly guilty? The fact of forgiving sins presupposes that there are sins to be forgiven. If I ask for forgiveness of my sins, I'm in, in doing so, I'm recognizing I'm a sinner. If I wasn't a sinner, I don't need forgiving, but I am a sinner. I do need forgiving. <clears throat> so right here in this context, we have a hard question. How can God not, excuse me, how can God not only forgive sins, but also render the sinner permanently righteous beyond further accusation? You see, the day you became a child of God, you also received God's complete righteousness posted to your account, and he will never accept an accusation against you again. Satan can't accuse you before God. Not successfully, he can't. We, conf we, we accuse ourselves. We condemn ourselves and so forth, and we condemn one another. But God does not. He made us permanently beyond further accusation. <clears throat> I have a hard time with that, but that's what God says. See, God says that my old sin nature can't be saved. It can't be. My old, you can call it what you want, call it the flesh, call it the old man, call it the old sin nature, the old chat. <clears throat> Couldn't be saved. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says that, that the flesh is not subject to God, neither can it be. See, even God can't save your old sin nature can't fix it, can't repair it. He's not trying to. The only way for me to stand before God at all is through the new birth. He had to give me a new birth. Had, in order to give me a new nature, he had to give me a new birth. <clears throat> That's why Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the only way in. He had to have a new nature. It's a simple truth. So in John chapter 1, verse 12, when he says, these that were born not of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God, in John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, he came unto his own, and his own, the Jews, received him not, but as to as many as received him, by faith, accepting him for who he was, gave he the authority, it says power, that's the word there is exousia, it means the authority, to be become, and the, the word there is genestheia, it means to be born as the children of God. Tekna is the Greek for the children there. The born ones, the offspring. That he's literally your father. That you're his real child. Not just dragged into his family and you know, put a little tag in your ear that says, yeah, you belong to God now. You still stink, but... No. No, you're really born again as a real child of God. That's what he says in John chapter 1, verse 12. I recognize that he's my judge, and I fear his devastating holiness, just as every other honest sinner before me has done. When Isaiah saw Jesus on the throne, he, he says, I'm, I'm done. I'm all done. I, woe is me. I'm undone. 
I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. He thought he was going to die. John, Jesus' best friend when he was on earth, saw Jesus in his post-resurrection uh, post glory in, in Revelation chapter 1. He says, I fell at his feet as a dead man. He almost died because he was seeing Jesus finally for who he really was. I fear his holiness just like anybody else because I know I don't measure up. But I recognize that he himself paid the price of my sin and that I now stand before him made worthy by the blood of Jesus. And that's the only hope I have. I have no other hope. Either his full payment of his blood of the cross is sufficient or I have nothing whatever to offer. That's all I've got. So Jesus was the wise and gracious judge and savior for this, this young woman. It says, the woman stood before him condemned by her own sin and confessing that she was a condemned sinner, but she was also submitting himself to her for that, to him for that judgment. She was submitting herself to him for that judgment and trusting in him to deal mercifully with her, and he did. And that's what it's all about, folks. See, that's a story that you can explain to people. You can tell them, look, I was a condemned sinner. I was headed for hell. I didn't even know it. I thought I was fine. But the fact is, I was headed for hell. Jesus took my place at the cross. He allowed me to be born again as a child of God. So now, my old self, God doesn't even deal with my old self. And I have eternal life now. I'm not waiting until I die to find out if I got it. I got it now. God says so. Jesus said so personally, several times. It's something you can explain to other people, to your friends, to your family, your neighbors, maybe a stranger. It's a priceless account of a precious soul for whom Jesus died and his counsel to her as the recipient of his mercy and grace is go and sin no more. Now see, I think right there is where the shoe leather hits the road that we need to recognize that yes, I am saved and yes, that means I belong to him and he says go and sin no more. Learn to walk with Jesus. Learn to be the person he's called you to be because that's also part of the game. Let's take that seriously. Let's pray together, and then we're going to take communion. Lord Jesus, we ask that you'd take your word, shine it on our hearts, help us to see ourselves as you see us, help us to see you as you see yourself. Help us to understand your gospel well enough to share it with those around us and free our hearts to serve you in humility and love. All we have to offer others is what you've already given to us. You've given us mercy and grace and eternal life all through faith in your name and in your shed blood. And we ask that you'd allow us to share that with others. In Jesus' name, amen.